0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me on this week's episode will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. We are returning after uh, quite some delay, as some of you may have seen on Facebook. Um, I, Chad Kim, recently had my first child, so, so I've been pretty occupied with him. I've also was finishing up the school year and um, trying to get some plans together for next year. So it's been quite busy and I've been unable to upload a podcast. But here we are. I have the second half, uh, which is our final conversation on uh, book nine. Um, So the second half of that conversation, we'll get to the end, the ascent. um, And then uh, yeah, this week we're recording on book 10. And so hopefully this will, you know, this will be a nice uh, transition into book 10, which as JJ O'Donnell has said, um, the whole book is actually kind of about the ascent. Um, It's all about how to ascend into God. Uh, So we will explore some of that in the next episode. This one will just focus on the ascent of Monica and Augustine at Ostia. I wanted to say before we get too much further uh, into the actual podcast, I wanted to say thank you to Bob Adams uh, for contributing to our Patreon. Um, we just had to pay for this year's uploading fees and costs, um, so it's nice to have someone offset that a little bit. Plus, I think we've had like 10 or 11 ratings and reviews on iTunes, um, and 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 those are very helpful to help people find the podcast. Um, Just a couple of them. uh, We had one guy uh, who said that uh, Wade Thomas says that he's a pastor at a Bible college, and this helps him. uh, Or Bible college grad, excuse me. And he has uh, a couple jobs and a couple kids, and he appreciates the podcast uh, because he can uh, learn about stuff uh, that it's hard to read about with, uh, not having very much free time. We also had some great comments, um, from, uh, W Cook. Uh, these guys are well studied and go deep, but they're willing to talk about topics that we've all pondered at some point. Um, it's, it's been great hearing all of these comments. Um, so please keep those coming. Thank you to those who are engaging with us on Facebook or reviewing us on iTunes um and uh hopefully we'll be back we'll record a few of these this summer and and we'll get some going before uh, we start up with the school year again at the end of august Uh, i might also be able to upload a few um lectures that i'm going to be giving this summer at a church here in town um about augustine and his life um so if um if anybody's interested in hearing about those, if anyone lives in St. Louis, uh, I can give you the details uh, on our Facebook page. But so we may have some additional comment coming up, uh, content coming up in the stream. Uh, my sister works in marketing, and she's always trying to get me to do more, um, more, more stuff on the on the feed. Keep it going, and it's hard with so much going on. So, uh, but anyway, without any further ado, uh, please do enjoy this episode um, on Book Nine. Uh, that that aside I think we should remember too what Augustine wants you to see in his transformation is now God is sweet um, God is humble uh God is delightful and all of the none of those things were true for him before uh and so that that also leads into his uh the the central feature of this chapter is what is called the ascent the mystical ascent um and and hopefully we'll we have some time to talk about that but i'll i'll stop and give uh, any comments there
1: um go ahead
2: yeah i have no yeah. real comments but that was interesting
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's good to know
0: about Augustine. does that i mean yeah, I don't know. Does that seem... I, okay, yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> fair yeah, enough. I mean, that,
1: I, I guess I am surprised that there's nothing autobiographical about him beyond this book or beyond, yeah, beyond book nine. Like, I mean, I certainly, you know, right. I mean, there's what, a, a third of the book left. Uh, so given that I've always thought of Confessions as principally a bio, an autobiography um, and admittedly not having read the whole thing before... Uh, so I'm not. I've not read. I don't think I've read any of anything beyond Book Nine before this. Um, it, you know that is a kind of uh, interesting thing. And 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 certainly I think you know the point you made is right. Obviously, obviously you know there's a, an issue of time in what we've read thus far. It's it's like. But I, I I wasn't really addressing. You know when he when I say that I mean an issue of the fact that. That he's referencing his freedom from sin just, uh, you know, without having to get like from kind of the vantage point of a much older man who can who no doubt has been freed in certain ways from many of his sins that might have taken time and, you know, might have been a process. But I guess more I'm just thinking it seems like he's thinking categorically, almost like once I had these things and then I didn't. Um, and I, I just would love to get at what that looked like in his mind, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. so Trevor, you?
2: No, no, no. That was, I was just agreeing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, cool. Well, let's, yeah, let's dive into, um, I, I don't know that we need to talk too much about uh, what Monica Says uh, or the the stuff about Monica. Other than we get a sense of her character, um, and uh, so which is uh, she? Well, I mean, actually, if we want to talk about uh, the role of women and men in uh, North African society, this is a weird kind of case study. Um, a Mo- uh, apparently, Augustine's father, Patricius, uh, before he became a Christian anyway, uh, maybe afterwards, uh, cheated on Augustine's mom. Uh, but he never beat her um and Augustine attributes this to her very um sort of uh peaceable disposition um and she was a very good woman she didn't desert her husband uh um, but she was able by her character uh to um uh, avoid the ire and anger of patricius uh and so this is you know it's sort of a it's a very bleak picture of life um in north africa and augustine also praises his mom for not being a gossip uh so you know she's around other women who are facing some serious threats and things but she never bad mouths her husband even though her husband absolutely deserved and i think that's part of the reason that augustine even relates it um he deserved some sort of uh correction um and uh but but you know, but her mom, but his mom said, "No, it's not my job necessarily to correct him, or at least, uh, you know, maybe in sparing her own sa- or for her own safety uh, from that the angry, violent men that apparently were frequent in North African circles." Uh, she, you know, she uh, she does a good job of of, of avoiding that, and uh, yeah, I mean, and I I think. That, well, yeah, stop I was going to say, yeah. I think that Go there's ahead.
1: a really good question that rises up here that could be looked at as... So this is, again, I mean, this episode, I guess, is going to be one of those ones where I'm lying in a big tension. Um But it seems to me, and I could be misreading, but he says here, and I can't give you, like I said, not only can I not follow along when you quote, but I can't give you where I'm reading from. It's uh, in the section where he begins kind of his discourse on Monica And he says, referring to his father, Patricius, he says, but besides this, he was fervid, as in his affections, so in his anger. So he's talking, so he's basically saying his dad had a hot temper. Um, But she had learned not to resist an angry husband, not in deed only, but not even in word. So, um, and then he's gonna go on, and he basically says that she meets these other women who are in similar situations, as no doubt. Most women were, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, I shudder to think, I mean, my own father, who, frankly, I think is a good man, a very good man, and he's soft and kind and gentle. He's from Mexico, uh, and he moved to America in, you know, nineteen seventy, what, four, something like that. He met my mom. He married her. Um, and he slapped her once and she was an American woman. So she was independent. She wasn't going to tolerate that. She fought back fiercely. And she said, don't you ever do that again? And my dad was like, whoa, back off. Never did anything like that again. I bring it up because my dad, who I do think is gentle and kind and, and not prone to violence in any way. Um, he had grown up just thinking, and I'm not trying to justify him at all. But I'm just trying to try to reinforce just how cultural, culturally strong this was that a husband's duty was to discipline his wife. And if that meant, you know, smacking her or something, then that's what ought to be done. That's just what he thought. And I again, I don't justify it, but that's how pervasive it was. And so I tend to think and this is something that's been reinforced in almost anything I've ever read or interacted with that that wives were just treated brutally. And so her response is to not respond in anger, not even in action or in word, and to essentially win him over, so to speak, with kindness and love. And then when she meets other women, she essentially encourages them to do the same. And what she says is, uh, in a word, while many matrons who had milder husbands yet bore even in their faces marks of shame would in familiar talk blame, would in familiar talk blame their husbands' lives. So basically, these women would gossip about their husbands. She would blame their tongues, giving them as in jest, earnest advice, that from time to time, they heard the marriage writings read to them, that is writings from the Scripture, they should account them as indentures, whereby they were made servants. And so remembering their condition ought not to set themselves up against their lords. So that basically, She's going to passages of the Bible that talk about wives submitting to their husbands, and passages like in, or, uh, I think First Peter, I believe, where it talks about um, a, a wife winning her husband um, through a gentle and quiet spirit, right? And so the idea being that yeah. they should submit and they should be, he says, as indentures, like servants, and they should look at call their husbands Lord, just as. Um, Peter also pointed out that Sarah did. Um, and so that by doing this, we'll win our husbands to kindness and mercy. So that if you have a husband like mine who has a hot temper, I can calm him by being kind in response and he will feel guilty and he will start to show kindness and he will change and become a better man. But that she's basically admonishing them not to be gossips about their husbands, not to, uh, kind of, Fight back with a lashing tongue, right? So so here's what I wanted to get to with this. And where uh, I existed. Hang in, on one second. Trevor, this is book 19. Or,
0: uh, chapter, 19. or uh, chapter
1: 19.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. Okay.
1: So the, this is where I wanted to get to with this and where I say there's a tension. First of all, I, like anybody, I think, has a certain degree of Ugh, when I hear something like this. Because if a woman is in a situation where she's being. You know, where she has a husband with a hot temper and she feels that she needs to act like a servant or a slave um, and that she needs to kind of let him do what he wants in that sense and submit to it. I think that's super awful, unhealthy and evil. Right. Um, But on the other hand, and this is where the tension is for me, the principle itself is one that, of course, is right in this, only in the sense, the sense that, that and I would, I would to maybe make it make more sense, universalize it, right? When Jesus says, um, you've heard that it was said to those of old, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn him the other also. When someone tries to compel you to walk a mile, walk with him too. When someone sues you to take away your shirt, give him your cloak also. In other words, there's this principle that he's taught us that we, in response to anger, hatred, vitriol, evil, we respond with love, kindness, mercy, and goodness. And that that is what changes people's lives. And that to me seems to be part of one, of, I mean, really the, the core revolutionary teaching of Christ. And, and the more I meditate on it, the more I think about how badly our culture needs this because our culture is so, and it's not just culture, it's human nature. I hate being belittled or looked down upon or, you know, I just bought a house and I have a land dispute already with my neighbor and a lawyer just told me that I'm correct. And my gut reaction is I want to take advantage of my correctness. (laughs) I want to use the land the way I want and I want to be able to just put it in that guy's face. And yet the gospel seems to say that I just grant whatever that man wants and give it to him kindly and, you know, to try to win him over with affection because winning the man is more important than winning the argument so to speak um so here's the tension and i think the principle is correct but the question really is to what point like what is like at what point do we say okay we have laid our lives down we've we've res- we've not resisted evil we've turned the other cheek but does there come a point at which we have to not and then how does this apply in a marriage relationship because this has been my this has been my thought is is that when peter says that a woman can win the affection of her husband by a gentle and quiet spirit that he's playing on this basic principle and my assumption is is that he's taking it for granted that this is that you know the culture that he lives in is what it is that it's a it's a it's a world in which women have no power no authority and in which a husband can do pretty much whatever he wants and that Peter's basically saying in that culture, in response to that, you have this weapon, you can win through kindness and love. Now, by the way, very important here, there's a major difference, of course, between meekness and weakness. And and it just it, it occurred to me relatively recently that I, I've heard teaching on that a lot. And it seemed that generally speaking, people point that out because they want to justify violent action. But I, I want to point it out not because I want to justify violent action, but because I want to remind people that I do not think at all that Jesus is advocating for being a beat puppy, that you're not walking in the commandment by living in fear and allowing yourself to just be trodden over, but rather it's a, it's a position of really power. It's you have the power and the ability to say, I could resist, but I'm gonna choose not to, and I'm gonna choose in kindness and love. To respond so anyway here that's a bunch of thoughts sorry guys that's a lot to throw out but yeah trevor you want you want <laughs> to answer
0: what's the answer <laughs> <laughs> oh boy
2: i mean yeah well i guess a general reaction i read the passage and i'm like great that they're like wives lives really sucked um but then actually just like you tom I thought of I thought of like how MLK for example um changed so much through basically nonviolent resistance and I ca- that that was originally what I thought of and I thought that the principle being spoken of here was similar to a principle probably that MLK himself used um but yeah, it was weird. It was weird reading it because I was sitting there and I'm going, "But this isn't exactly what MLK would do," because it would, because it's that it's that nonviolent yet resistance part. It's like it it's a it is a tension, but there's a oh boy, I don't know. There's something there. I mean, my first my first like initial thought is that obviously tolerating an evil. Such as being uh, physically abused is is horrible for you. I mean, obviously, um, unless there's there's just some obvi- you know some reasons that are very apparent as to why not to tolerate it. But but furthermore, um, there's like these two further evils that I think are the reason why it's you have to like resist yet be but still love. In this way you still have to follow jesus commandment yet resist in, in certain ways um i would think first there's the there's the way in which there's these societal evils and that we have some sort of um duty to resist their being perpetuated now the the bible doesn't you know i mean hopefully you guys can come up with some examples, but I can't think of any out of the top of my mind where the Bible talks about this often because they, the Christian, the early Christian church was persecuted and lived amongst just a society that was so antithetical in values and was full of many evils and people were politically and oppressed and yada, yada, yada. So it's, it's kind of hard to think of it that way. Um, as like the Christians going out and basically being, you know, advocates for a change of some cause politically at the time, it would have seemed, I think probably ludicrous, but I think now we have a power to do that. So I don't know. I think maybe there's one reason that you don't want to perpetuate something. I doubt Monica had that ability in, uh, in Africa at the time. So not faulting anyone or anything, but there's, but there's also the, the evil of, the other person committing evil is is hurting themselves by committing evil and so i know that sounds like super pie in the sky abstract but i actually think that is an important reason to also resist is you you kind of are saving the other person in certain ways at the very least but i don't know i don't know what those are two just thoughts i had while reading the passage but that that was really all i had to say so no, I don't have an answer.
0: <laughs> uh, well, so what I – okay, let me let me say what I'm going to say, and then we can decide what we want to do. But um, so, okay, I think what uh, – part of the way that I look at this is if you're Augustine in uh, – so this is uh, – so his, his – Patricius and Monica uh, are married in – and they're living in roughly, let's say, it's like, I think it's like by like 375, 380, let's say their marriage goes from 40 years, 330 to 375. You're living in a world where Christianity has only just uh, been a licit religion. Um, so the world in which they are living said, it was the, the religion that you are part of is not even legal. So your ability to transform an entire culture um, is very little. You don't have a voice in voting, as we would know. Uh, you don't have mass communication. Um, there, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're even afraid sometimes when you're preaching whether or not you're going to be hauled off uh, to the Coliseum uh, and just be killed by the lions. So even the times where you have to speak publicly are they're very. Uh, they're very few. They're very and, and they're very tenuous. So like you know, so if you tell uh, Monica, hey Monica, if you like, you should be praised um, because you found a way to avoid having an angry husband beat you uh, by your temperament, um, and and so she, you know that's a good thing. Now, what would be better is if we had a way to tell and enforce such that all men who beat their wives would go to prison because that is vicious and awful. Um, We don't. Um, And he – and so we do see Augustine really – he is talking about the awful things that his father did. um, And he doesn't really like his father as far as we can tell most of the time. So he is critical of his father. But what he is praising is is a stopgap measure, you might say. Like, hey, if you're in a desperate situation, mm-hmm. you should you know, you need to do the thing that will preserve your life because all the social mores aren't going to change. Um, in, in an instant. And so I sort of think some of the admonition that Augustine gives to his mother, or praise even of his mother, and what she says to the other women, is sort of like Hey, how do we get around without any power, without any vote, without any voice, and without any other capabilities? How do we protect ourselves? Well, you got to stop gossiping about your husband because if he hears about it, he's going to get even more angry at you. Um, And you have to know when to resist him. She says that he didn't – that she didn't resist him while he was angry. She says that she – it doesn't say that she never resisted him, but she certainly didn't do it when he was angry um and and so but but she overcame him with love we also have the problem of it seemed to kind of work for patricius and this almost certainly didn't work for other women in north africa so augustine's praise of monica is praise knowing that well look it worked for her it should work for all women and that may not be the case uh it almost certainly wasn't the case uh so what i'm saying is. I don't think that we shouldn't, as Christians, fight for change in culture and use our voices and other means that we have to speak out against these kinds of things uh, in our contemporary situation. Uh, but but there is still I think that there's still a kind of advice that we can take which says, well, to the point that you know circumstances aren't going to change immediately, we do have ways in which we can protect ourselves. Um, and and I do think that there are means by which we can change people, even through our dispositions. Um, and it's sort of part of what Christianity was, as I understand it in the Empire. Um, it is a groundswell movement. It is a grassroots uh, movement where Christ says, you know, Christ doesn't say love everybody, and Christ doesn't say take over the government. Christ says love your neighbor and live this way towards your neighbor. Uh, and then Christianity, you know, it was, it was like you know lighting. Uh, it was like a, a it caught on fire, but from below, not from above. And because people on individual levels changed how they related to each other, and and the the religions, you know, Christianity spread. Um, so it, it started not with like changing the empire but by changing individual people and how they related to each other so it does have a sort of interpersonal beginning um, and then later uh, it has an ability to affect you know larger structures it
1: does and I, and I don't know I, if
0: that makes any sense yeah it does and I agree in my
1: head almost entirely I mean um, it, it, and, and I, but I, but I have this this tension still sits in my soul like like what you said you said, they were at that time in a position where they had no power, right? And because they had no power, they had to use the weapon that they had. But I guess, you know, and so you brought up the fact that, you know, if you have people, men who beat their wives, then we need to remove them from that situation now because we have the power to do that and we need to put them in prison and things like that. And I agree. So don't take this as a me disagreeing with that in any way. Um, I think that those in power, and that's us, I mean, I guess, whatever that means, (laughs) I mean, our culture now, um, Uh, I guess what I mean by that is people who think that men who beat wives should be put in prison. That's us. Like back then, the culture was the power, those in power were ones who did not believe that men who beat their wives should be put in prison. Right. So that's that's what I mean by that. Then, yes, we do that. But um, I guess my question is, uh, like, I don't know how to how to put this. Uh, So I guess let me put it this way, kind of going back to our political, current political situation, current cultural situation in terms of our discourse. um, People are getting more and more angry with each other and seemingly more and more willing to hurt each other, if not verbally, or sorry, if not violently, at least verbally. And a lot of us are doing it in the name of, of, uh putting like basically, uh, you know, kind of protecting the oppressed, right? And and I think in a lot of instances, that's exactly right. Like we see people who are oppressed and hurt and we want to spare them and save them. But what I see in response is not the desired outcome. It's not people becoming less cruel and mean and oppressive. It's people becoming more those things, right? and i kind of think that that's part of the ethic that jesus is saying is that when you use the tools of hatred, anger, vitriol, violence what that does whether you're good or wrong whether you're right or wrong is it leads to a violent response and result which is undesirable and that the tools of love and grace and mercy are the tools that lead to mercy and love and grace and peace. I I think that's kind of what he's getting at. And so, like, you gave that example. You said Monica, her, uh, you know, it worked with Patricius, but no doubt there were women with whom it did not work. That's absolutely no doubt the case. Um, And so then you just feel the, this is where my tension lies. You feel the horror of the fact that somebody trying to be righteous and good is only being tormented more because, the the their husband her husband is worse uh is like incapable of even responding to the righteous and the good and and in those instances the only thing we can reflect back on is confidence that god is good and will give mercy um you know to them and so yeah um yeah so so i guess all that to say that that's the tension i feel and I feel it in this, when I read this, because I look at Monica and I go, this is so tragic that women were in that situation. And then I also look at Monica and go, but I get why Augustine is praising her for this, because this is the way that Jesus taught us, that, it, that in the face of violence and anger, by love and kindness, we win them to righteousness. And that's, the, that's kind of the ethic he's laying out before us. And then I see it also in our current political situation. I see people being angry for things that I usually think they should not usually because there're tons of different sides in this but I see people being angry about things that often I think people should be angry about and and wanting to and you know I think about you know setting the captives free and 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 you know all of that kind of stuff and and I think that that being wanting to fight for that kind of stuff is good and right but then I also see the other result which is that it just seems to lead to more anger, vitriol, and violence. And it seems that the right response is this kindness, mercy, love, peace, right? So, anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, even in the, yeah, it's tough. I mean, even in the MLK situation, when they would do these sit-ins, I saw a video of some of these sit-ins where... That, you know, it didn't work just not being violent. You sat in the wrong place and people just mercilessly beat you. And that actually made often these like uh, racist uh, whites in that area just angrier that someone even would dare to sit in. And really what what actually worked was this stuff being caught on camera and other people seeing it and going, well, that's really messed up. <laughs> and, and thus... Uh, enacting change so it was like sort of this garn- garnering of sympathy so it's not so yeah there is this yeah there is this horrible thought exactly what you said about people following Monica's advice but certainly not getting the right result because basically there's there's no one else there to help um, which is a horrible thought it did, it did like cross my mind
0: yeah, well, this is—I mean, this is a good conversation, and I mean, I—I'm, you know, I'm on the the, the i mean, I, I'm pretty much a pacifist, so, uh, and, and don't have much uh, sympathy for, uh, I don't know, I—I I have my—I my peculiar views about the way that Christians should relate to the state. I'll say that anyway. Um and so i i I mean like I'm all for let's focus on the local, let's focus on the individual, and let's continue to remember that christ's call was to love the neighbor, not to get angry and vitriolic and stuff on uh social media and whatnot um, you know, I was not trying to encourage that i mean i I guess I was just trying to I was just trying to set up, and i think I think you guys both agree with me. all I was trying to do was set up the situation in which Monica was in, recognizing that the amount of Uh, control that she had over situation or to change societal structures was really low Uh, and the same for Augustine Uh, and actually just to throw it into uh, a a more stark light uh, there's a Roman legal phrase uh, that is uh, potestas vitae necisque uh, which is the power of life and death Um, and so the husband had the power that is the right uh, to kill or to let live anyone in his family. Um, so the Roman legal system was based on the principle that the pater familias, the head of the family, could kill or let live whoever he wanted. Um, and so to, to, the, you know, to the extent that that is what is coloring even Augustine's praise of his mother, he was saving her life. Yeah. Um. In, in this, he might have been. I don't know. It's at least possible that he's thinking. Look, if you got really angry and tried to resist him at the wrong time, he could kill you and face yeah. no punishment for it.
1: Yeah. Right. Which. No, that's good. And and to be honest, and this is definitely a discussion for another day because this would take us down forever. But you know, I've been thinking a lot because you know, for our audience, I have always been a complementarian. Um, And for those of you who don't know what that means, that means I ascribe to more traditional—this is Tom speaking, by the way. I don't necessarily think Chad and Trevor agree with me on this, but I've always ascribed to more traditional views of women's roles in both the church and in the home, right? So I've not felt a need necessarily, for instance, to explain passages uh, about—scripture passages— Uh, such as in Ephesians or 1 Peter about wives submitting to their husbands or about passages which forbid women from roles in leadership in the church, which is super unpopular culturally nowadays, but has been the traditional view of the church. But what I do, what I've been thinking a lot about lately, and so I don't want to go down this rabbit trail. I'm just throwing this out there as a, uh, this would be great for further discussion later. But I've been wondering to what degree, this cultural backdrop has influenced some of those beliefs. Um, and it'd be fun to sometime go through scriptures discussing, uh, discussing those, uh, you know, those things, because, you know, I think about the fact that um, what you just said about the role of the pater familias, right, the father of the family, who is a monarch in his home, and that's a culture, cultural and legal status, that you couldn't just challenge. So then to what degree is it that the church is saying given or that the apostles were saying given these current structures what is the way that we operate as Christians how do we best operate as Christians in this context and and, and you had a similar you had similar passages uh concerning slavery right uh concerning slaves in in the household which of course i find slavery evil and appalling and and all of those things, um, and so, so yeah. How do you uh, interpret that stuff? And this is something. This is again just throwing this out there, Chad and Trevor. I've, uh, you know, I've always known that there must be a certain degree of progressive revelation because once upon a time nobody knew that Jesus was going to die and raise again. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there must be a degree of progressive revelation. But I've always been resistant um, to the idea of of progressive revelation wanting to try to as much as possible maintain the idea that all the truth anybody ever needed to know kind of came wholesale and has remained static, right? Not, you know, unchanged. Um, but I, I, I'm finding myself really wanting to look more into some of the ideas on that. In fact, Chad, I just picked up, uh, um, oh shoot. What is the, the great English uh, Catholic cardinal? Uh, what was his name? Yeah, no, 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 uh, Henry Newman? Uh, John Henry like, Newman? Uh, the one who converted from Anglicanism and wrote, oh man. Yeah, the oh, essay yeah, on yeah, development yeah. John, Henry, John sorry. Henry Newman. When you said Henry, Cardinal Newman, yes, sorry, I apologize. Card- you started with Henry and my brain yeah, just Card- was Newman, like not yeah. accepting that because I always think John Henry Newman. Yeah. Oh, I apologize, yes, no, yes. <laughs> so I just got his yeah. essay on the develop on like basically the development of church doctrine i'm really intrigued to read it um um, but yeah so that's kind of an aside it's neither here nor there but all of this does bring that to bear in my mind as a question you know and it's a conversation i'd love to keep having in the future which as long as this podcast goes on i'm sure we will do (laughs) and maybe someday we'll get to henry Henry, john John henry newman right <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hope so. Oh boy!
0: Uh, all right. So uh, the last thing that we will let's wrap up with this. The last thing that we need to say, and I've said it before in previous podcasts, but the the reason that Augustine does all of this foregrounding of who Monica is and the life of Monica is that she's going to die at the end of this chapter. Um, So he's going to talk about her death. But right before she dies, Augustine and his mom were at the coast. Um, I have stood where supposedly they stood uh, and they looked out of a window uh, overlooking the Mediterranean. The moon uh, and the stars are shining bright and they start talking and their conversation becomes an ascent Uh, And so this is the, this is a language that's taken over from Neoplatonism. Uh, It's appropriated by Augustine. Um, And what this ascent actually means is something like uh, Augustine and his mom uh, enter into the presence of God uh, and they do it together. There's, it's, it's sort of, I mean, my thought is like when I was a, You know, we never called it an ascent, obviously, but when we would go to camp, we called it a mountaintop experience, right? Right? We'd go to church camp, uh, and you would have some emotional experience. Usually for me, it was uh, precipitated by some guitar singing uh, and a really long sermon, and we were tired and exhausted from playing, and someone would uh, play a guitar song, and we would feel something very intense. Um, I presume that Augustine's is maybe – well, I don't know. Maybe that's the same thing. I'm not really sure. But that was our kind of ascent. And it was a mountaintop experience. And then we would go back down uh, to the valley. And so it's, it's actually funny. I have only just now, as I'm talking, thinking about the similarity of language of up and down, ascend, descend, mountain, valley. I've never put those all together. That we even use the same language to some degree, the same directional language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when you say that Monica and and Augustine entered into the presence of God, that was something I didn't quite pick up on. So what specifically happened? It was like our mountaintop experience, you say, but like from their perspective, what do they think? Uh, well, yeah. So it's 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 a bunch of poetic language.
0: So uh, book tw- or uh, book nine, chapter twenty four is the beginning of it. So it says, our conversation was brought clear to the conclusion that any degree of delight in the physical senses under however much material light didn't seem worthy of comparison or even of mention in relation to the bliss of that eternal life. Stretching upward with a more fiery emotion toward that thing itself, we walked around step by step. Uh, Clearly this is uh, metaphorical. All material objects and even the sky from which the sun and the moon and the stars shine over the earth, and still we climbed they're, they're ascending upwardly – or excuse me, inwardly, so metaphorical, uh, as we thought of and spoke of and wondered at your works. We came into our own minds and climbed up beyond them to reach the land of abundance that never fails, where you graze Israel forever on the fodder that is truth. So – Wherever they get is to this place beyond the soul, beyond oh, but beyond the material, uh, beyond the stars and the moon and the and the sky, uh, beyond the soul, beyond the the even that part, and it's someplace where quote you graze Israel on the fodder that is truth. So somehow truth, they are coming into the presence of truth. Uh and he compl- he continues in that place is found the life that is wisdom through which all these things around us are made. So w- wisdom is a synonym for uh for the logos uh for the for Jesus uh well f- for the Word of God um, and who who is incarnate in Jesus Christ. Uh, so in uh, uh patristic theology at the time uh, there was an association between the person of wisdom Sophia um, and uh and and uh the word and so and the the wisdom and the word are the agents of creation uh in typical patristic theology um and uh yeah so so that's who they're coming into contact with, who is also called truth, right? I'm the way, the truth and the life, right so you' talking about Jesus uh wisdom itself is not made, but is what it it has always been, it will always be that, so this thing that was it is and forever shall be the word. Uh, but while we were speaking and panting for it with a thrust that required all the heart strength, we brushed against it si- uh, slightly. Uh, so whatever is going on, uh, they're in this place where they touched. Uh, the. They were came so close to the presence of wisdom, truth, the word, Jesus Christ. I have no idea um, exactly how to describe it in any other way than just reading what he said. And then he says, then we sighed and left behind us and hearing up there, the first fruits of the spirits had made our way back down to the racket of our mouths. So oddly enough, whatever he's describing is actually while they're talking. So Monica and Augustine are having a conversation. Um, and in that conversation, they like sort of forget that they're even conversing somehow, um, and move into the presence of wisdom, of truth, um, where God feeds uh, Israel. So in this case, Augustine is ad- associating both he and Monica uh, with the um, eternal Israel. Um, I, I we and so there's a further description of it of their words um, in twenty five and, and twenty six. <laughs> But so that is—I mean, that is—that's what he says.
1: Literally happened, or if he's just—I
0: I mean, I think it must have literally happened. But he had no other way to describe. Well, I mean, it, it. What he describes just there, what I just read, uh, what he describe—he describes it in some kind of metaphorical language, um, and then he says, "And we return to the uh, racket of our mouths." So. What I take to be happening in this whole situation is Augustine and Monica start talking about God and God's creation, um, and then they start, and so they're looking, they're looking at the Mediterranean, they're looking at the stars, they're looking at the moon, uh, and they start saying, start talking about how beautiful it is, maybe, and then they. And, and then they talk like sort of they then they understand they move beyond the things in themselves and they go beyond it to the art of the the maker the wisdom that created all of these things right so think of John one in the beginning was the word and you know all things were made through him right so they they think about that and they think about him as truth as wisdom and somehow that that beauty that conversation made them both br- brush up against uh, Mm. the, the turtle truth. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know what that, uh, I don't know what that is exactly. Like I said, I compared it to some experience, uh, of my own, but, but you know, I I can, yeah, let's, I'll leave that. I, I kind of compared
2: it to, I've never had it in a conversation with another person, but I've like had conversations in my own mind Uh, sort of, I guess, with myself, maybe, I'm not really sure, where sort of my first person experience does like (laughs) dim in a way. And I have this like soul concentration on the content of my mind, which in the beginning is very linguistic, and then starts to become almost non-linguistic. Now, I don't know if this is like, See, the thing is, I think this might just be idiosyncratic to myself. I have no idea whether other people ever go through this, but I've gotten so lost in concentration. It's it feels like getting just lost in a good book. It's the same sort of feeling when you're really sucked into the story. Nothing exists but the story. And then all of a sudden you're, you like kind of you have that feeling of sort of like coming back to reality. There are. The way they talked sort of reminded me of that. I don't know if that that is what, it, of course, was what happened. But it sounded like that, almost like through conversing about first just sort of heavenly bodies, literal ones. They sort of kept moving up and up and up in their discussion such that they sort of were transcending the discussion itself. Now, that's definitely never happened to me. In a conversation with another person, because I am so focused on the actual world around me, because I'm trying to like listen to what they're saying, um, unless you do that thing where you just ignore <laughs> what they're saying and think. But, um, but, but normally I'm trying to focus on the actual noise that's being made at me by this person, um, rather than I, I don't have this weird experience. But alone, I've had. I mean, but I don't know. I wouldn't describe it in such a, a mystical way. Um, but, it's, but I've had experiences where it's, especially because of what he says in 25, where he's talking about like all these sort of fleshly experiences sort of melting away. That is sort of what these um, really deep introspective moments have felt like to me, because they also become nonverbal. I'm not really even... Thinking in words anymore, but I'm still thinking, which is very strange, and I don't know how that works. Um, I don't know that that was my best relation to it,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, there's there's a few other like there's a lot of words of adhering, and uh, sort of uh, one of the words is uh, in 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 Latin that's kind of interesting, uh, is uh, they breathed, um, and uh, they left their chain to the first spirit, so somehow uh whatever they were happening ligare it, it like they like they, they they feel like they actually sort of connected to um, the spirit uh mm. through this and the, and it like and that part never left uh, although they moved something in the both of them connected to the spirit and that was never although they went back to their mm. uh conversation. Um, that connection remained. Um, but, you know, the words that come in 25, uh, he, you know, sort of repeats some of the things that I've said. Uh, you know, uh, we touched, e- so uh, uh, this is 25. Uh, we we reached out in the swiftness of thought. We touched eternal wisdom, which lasts beyond all things. Uh, that You know, again, this is that. Uh, and, and then he says in 26, I, we spoke to this effect, although not in these precise words. Uh, but he says he sort, and then he goes on to sort of explain it, uh, and and he says that um, let's see uh, that he says that he wants to move beyond uh, this. Uh, uh, Okay, yeah. Imagine that all other visions, so greatly inferior, were removed, and that this alone were to remain. Would this vision by itself seize us and absorb us and restore the beholder to those inner joys so that eternal life would be just uh, what that moment of understanding had been, the one for which we sighed? Surely it means this, enter the joy of our Lord. And when will this happen? Surely when we all rise again. Uh, So, what I think he's, uh, I mean, the best I can figure out what he's saying, uh, and what happened, is that he's reaching out to the thing that for him is the most real, um, and he's touching and he's experiencing something that's beyond. Remember, the the physical world was uh, was corruptible, was changeable, was t- uh, was um, uh, deceiving. Um, and the only thing that was purely true, undeceiving and fixed, is God. Um, and so, for Augustine and for the the he's I mean very mystical here. Uh, mm-hmm. He's actually yeah, moving into the most
1: real. This is all world. Plato, right? I mean, this is all, um, and he's removing himself. He, for, this yeah. is his Platonist leanings coming out. I should say. Well, yeah, it is. It is mimicked by
0: some of the stuff that Plotinus says. But again, I would always contend that it's important to remember that for one, Monica oh, yeah. is with him, which is impossible in uh, Platonism. Uh, two, uh, two that his most of his speech mm-hmm. that he records is all called uh, from scripture, uh, and so he does. He, you know, he does say that uh you know he does talk about um a lot of these were a lot like i said a lot of these phrases come from scripture and all this use of the word and such uh is is from scripture i guess it's also from uh greek philosophy but ah, i don't know yeah it's true there is definitely some uh there's definitely some sort of commingling or something of platonism uh, well especially the use of that but
2: phrase it, thing in itself which i i have a different translation
0: that's super contemporary it a dipsom. but yeah it mine it a dip sorry go so so the latin word the latin word is in a dipsom, and augustine takes it from the psalm psalm 99 mm. so it is a direct actual uh it's in the vulgate um but or well it's uh, it's in the the vetus latina i should say so but. is it
2: does it really thing in itself because mine
0: renders itself in self uh, the the latin phrase is "inidipsum," uh which yeah it, we is a, it's a neuter uh so that which is weird uh and it yeah it 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 uh it be usually translated as itself hmm. and hmm. into itself yeah okay It's a purely bizarre kind of thing in terms of a lot of the literature of the period. We, I mean, no one writes as mystically as Augustine does like this passage. There's really – I mean, other than in Platonist works, I don't know mm. of any other Christian work that describes this kind of experience. Now,
1: you, there's a proper name for this experience, right? I mean, there's a term that is used. Is that correct? Uh, the ascent. The ascent of Augustine and Monica.
0: Yeah, it's the, the ascent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think that's all very Interesting. good. <laughs> I think I, I, I don't know that I have much more to comment <laughs> on myself. I think.
0: Thank you for listening to History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim, um, and we'll be back next week with Book 10.